Well, good morning to you all. But after uh, 19 weeks, we finally finished the book of Philippians. But it's been a great journey. I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have. Uh, so if you would grab your Bible and go to Philippians chapter 4, that's where we will be, and that's where we will finalize the book of Philippians. As you turn there, I know what you're probably thinking. You're probably wondering what's next. As far as sermon series go, uh, we will spend three weeks on a series on evangelism, and then it's Palm Sunday, and then it's Easter. And then we will open a long book. It will probably take me about ten years to get through. Uh, but it's a, just a very deep and theological book. It's the Gospel of John. That's where we will be here in about a month or so. Okay, so today we will read Philippians chapter 4. Our scripture reading will be from verses 14 through 23. What this is is really the epilogue of the book. The epilogue really begins in verse 10. But today we will begin our reading in verse 14. And what I see at the heart of this passage, I see one central theme. It's the theme of generosity, but not just generosity from humans to humans, but also generosity from God to us. We will begin reading in verse 14 of chapter 4 of Philippians. It says this, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. Verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you as well, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen and amen. Today I'd like to talk to you about generosity about generosity. Now, when I say this, we all kind of get a little weird, okay? But they always told me in seminary, the first thing I should do whenever I begin a message is to grab people's attention. But today I'm going to break that rule. What I want to do is I actually want you to put your mind in park for just a second. I want you to put your mind in park and I want you to think about the past. When is a time in your life that someone was generous to you? What was the outcome of their generosity? What were the feelings that they had? What feelings do you have today as you think back? This week I put my mind in park and I tried to think of at least one time in my life when somebody was generous to me. I thought of just trying to think of one story, but actually three different stories came to mind. The first story came when I was age nine. When I was a young child, maybe you remember this, but my family was going through a very difficult season. And some 25 years ago, someone from Calvary Bible Church, when my family was going through this difficult season, brought over to my mother's house 
this gigantic dish of my favorite vegetable. My favorite vegetable is broccoli and cheese, okay? Now, it's not necessarily good for you, but it tastes great. But it was my favorite kind of broccoli and cheese. It was like 90% Velveeta with a little bit of sprinkling of broccoli with a little bit of fried onions, okay? Uh, But as a child, I remember this dish being about this big. It must have been like five gallons. It was so thick you could probably swim in it, okay? But my mother said to me one night, she said to me that, Byron, I'm going to throw away the rest of the broccoli and cheese if you do not eat it all by the end of the night. So challenge accepted. (laughs) So I loosened my belt and I probably ate a gallon of it as a nine-year-old boy. I still remember it was like spilling off the plate. It was so full. But my belly ached for about two days. But I remember the two days after. You know, somebody was generous. It, it, it reminded me that somebody out there just cared. They cared enough to show generosity and love to a nine-year-old boy. And what's amazing about that story is that the people who brought that dish 25 years ago still are here and are actually in this sanctuary today. Thank you. My second story was during the same time period. I was 9 or 10 years old, and every Wednesday night I would show up for Awana, and I would go find a lovely lady. Her name was Betty Spann. She would generously find me with my Awana uniform pressed and cleaned, hanging on a hanger for me to wear that night, and that happened every Wednesday night during that time period. My third story was when I was in seminary, and periodically, as you all know, I grew up at this church, so I would periodically come back and visit with you all, and I remember I was out in the hallway, and some gentleman approached me and handed me a piece of paper. I opened it up, and it was a check for $500, and I still remember the check. I still remember the person that gave it to me that spoke to me as they were supporting us through seminary. And what's amazing about that story is that person is actually sitting in the sanctuary also today. And I just want to say thank you for your generosity. Generosity demonstrates love, it encourages hearts, and bears fruit for years to come. Perhaps if those three stories did not exist, perhaps if those three people did not see a nine-year-old boy and a young man that just needed a little bit of love and a little bit of assistance and a little bit of generosity, perhaps my children would not know Calvary Bible Church, and perhaps I would not be standing before you as Calvary, Calvary's pastor. Generosity demonstrates love, encourages hearts, and bears fruit for years to come, but oftentimes the giver has no idea of what is in store. Generosity makes a difference and leaves a legacy. But as Christians, we have a fundamental problem. When it comes to church, there is a fundamental flaw with our idea of generosity. The problem is that we have been warped. You have been warped by our American culture on the subject of generosity. Let me give you three examples. Uh, One example that you have been warped is that when I say the word generosity, what do you automatically think in your mind? The preacher is hitting me up for money, okay? That's probably what you think in the back of your mind, but actually nothing can be further from the truth. The church is actually doing really well financially right now, and I do not get a bonus based on your giving. The second way you have been warped is that when I say the word generosity or giving, you only think about one particular object. You think about money. 
But there is more than one way to give and to be generous. The third way that we have been worked in our American culture is that when you hear of giving or generosity, your mind almost subconsciously thinks of it as a burden. But real generosity, giving, is fun. As Dave Ramsey says, there's only three uses for money, right? To save it, to spend it, and to give it. And what does he say every time? That giving money away is the best part. Generosity demonstrates love, encourages hearts, and leaves a legacy. My goal today in Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 23, my goal is quite simple. What I want to do is I want to erase the lies that you have on the whiteboard of your mind. I want, you, I want to erase the lies and the misgivings you have uh, concerning generosity, and I want to replace that with truth. And the truth that we will find today is one particular aspect of biblical generosity. It's found in Philippians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it back to Philippians chapter 4. And what we see really at the heart of this passage is that we see the results of generosity and the results or principles are twofold. I want you to notice the first result of generosity found in verse 14. Notice it. It says, nevertheless, you, church in Philippi, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, modern-day Greece area, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you and you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Quite simple. What does Paul express here in verses 14 through 17? Yeah, gratitude. Exactly. Gratitude, gratefulness, or thankfulness. They're giving of two gifts. They're giving of at least two gifts creates in Paul an affection or in or gratefulness. My first principle or point today is that generosity creates gratefulness from others. Generosity creates gratefulness from others. I've already kind of mentioned this, but how many gifts did Paul receive? It's more than one. It says this, for even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. What is Paul saying? Even when all of the churches that he has planted, that he has ministered to, after all of them refused to give to him, the church in Philippi gave to him multiple times and in abundance. When you give to people in need, it creates affection. When, when someone is generous without strings attached, without the desire of reciprocation, then it creates fondness. Have you ever noticed that before? And when somebody is generous, it creates a warmth and gratitude and gratefulness. I mean, think about it. 25 years later, I remember the exact person who brought to me that big tub of cheese, okay? I remember 25 years later that I could walk up to Betty Spann every week and faithfully receive my Iwana uniform perfectly pressed and cleaned. Ten years later, I still remember the exact person and the exact amount of that check just that made me feel loved and cared for. Generosity demonstrates love and it leaves a legacy. But then notice the second result in your text. Notice the second principle of generosity in verse 17. 
Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek, that word seek literally means to crave, but I seek for the profit or fruit which increases to your account. What is the second result of generosity? Their generosity increases their profit or fruit into their accounts. Wait a second. Who increases the generosity to their account? Yeah, generosity principle number two is that generosity creates generosity from God. So catch the implication real quick that God cares and God recognizes our generosity. God takes into account when we are generous with our resources, with our finances, with our time, with our care, with how we cook, that God recognizes and cares when we are generous to other people in need. Now, if you're still unsure if this is true, if you're a skeptic out there because of today's modern culture in our church, what you will find interesting is that, is that this idea that God actually cares about our generosity, what you will see is that this theme is throughout the Scripture. Believe it or not, this theme is not just found in Philippians chapter 4, but it's found in many different places. One of them is in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. It says this, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from all, the, all, from all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. If that doesn't convince you, then listen to this one. Matthew chapter 6, this is Jesus speaking, speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as all of the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Verse 3 of chapter 6 of Matthew. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Principle number two is that generosity creates generosity from God, that God notices, that God rewards if we give in the right way. Now, I know I am on thin ice, okay? Some of you are probably wondering where I'm going with this thought. Now, before you think I'm going off in uh, la-la land, before you think I'm going off to the prosperity gospel which basically means that if you give a dollar, God will give you ten in return, okay? Before you think this, what I want to do is I want you to actually fix three lies that you have in your mind regarding generosity. Lie number one of generosity is the prosperity gospel. As mentioned, the prosperity gospel is something like this, that if you give a dollar today, God will give you ten tomorrow, that God will give your money back with interest. God is not... Can I say... God is not obligated to give us a return on our investment, okay? For, that God is not obligated to, for every dollar we give, he gives ten in return. But the truth is this, that God does see our generosity, and he does take it into account, and it does profit his kingdom. 
But lie number two is the opposite. This is the one that we, most of us believe in this room. Sometimes in conservative churches, we are so uh, reactive to the culture that we basically say, oh, well, churches are preaching the prosperity gospel that if I give a dollar, I'll get ten tomorrow. So what we do is we are reactive. We swing the opposite direction completely, and we basically say lie number two, that God does not care if we give, that God does not take it into account, that God does not even notice. But that's a lie. Sometimes, friends, we must be careful not to be so reactive to the culture that we forsake the truth of the Scripture. And then line number three of generosity is that if you are generous, people will take advantage of you. Line number three is that if you are generous, that people will take advantage of you. And the irony to this one is that this is not a lie. I used to work at a previous church, and we would give money out. I think it was like the first or second of the month. So on the first and second day of the month, guess what happened? Our phones would just absolutely blow up. And then on the third, they would never call back again. Okay, that's what happened. But that's a lie that basically, or actually it's not a lie, that people will take advantage of us if we give. People will. That's reality. But as a Christian, we are here to be taken advantage of. I mean, just imagine if Jesus, right, we're supposed to be like Jesus, have his attitude which is in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Imagine if Jesus came to this earth and said, you know, I want to be with these people, but I don't want them to take advantage of me. What would have happened if Jesus had this attitude that I want to be here with these people, and, uh, but I do not want them to take advantage of me? What would have happened? Well, number one, he would not have healed the sick, Right? Number two, he would definitely not have put up with the disciples. Amen? Those guys were knuckleheads. Okay. Number three, he would not have turned the water into wine because his own mother asked for a favor. But if, wait a second, if Jesus was afraid that we would take advantage of him, then he would not have died on the cross. We take advantage of the fact that Jesus died on the cross, that he demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no way that we could earn heaven. There's no way we could get to heaven. So we have to, in a sense, take advantage of the provision that he has given us. Friends, we have this misconstrued idea as Christians that we should not be generous because we do not want people to... Now, just so that you know, just in case you're wondering, I'm not advocating irresponsibility with finances. I'm not advocating that we enable people. But I am simply trying to get you to see the lies that you believe and to replace those lies with truth. But then notice the second principle continued in verses 18 through 20. It says this, But I have received from Epaphroditus... Excuse me, I, I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied, have received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. What does that sound like? Romans chapter 12. And my God will supply all your needs according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Gratefulness creates, uh, generosity creates gratefulness amongst humans and generosity creates generosity from God. 
they profit in verse 17 from the Lord's generosity, but then they are assured in verse 19 that God, my God, will. Circle that word will. It shows certainty. My God will supply all your needs. That, what does that tell you? That God is watching. That God knows your needs. That God will supply all your needs. Notice that word. According to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to make an observation with me of what this verse does say and what it does not say. This week in staff meeting, what I do every week is I basically take the scripture and I give it to the staff and I just let them make observations on the text. And they made a very important observation. What does the scripture say and what does it not say? It says that God will supply all our needs, not all our wants. Sometimes, let's be real, we get those two mixed up. And we get mad at God when we do not get what we want, but God is watching and He will give us all that we need. And when I hear verse 19 is this, I hear confidence, and I will basically close it out here in just a minute. And my God will supply all your needs according to the riches of His glory. And then notice the salutation. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you and be with your spirit. My point today is generosity creates gratefulness from others and generosity creates gratefulness from God. But my goal is for you, as I've mentioned, is to take the lies that you believe about money, about generosity, about God's reward for it. And I want you to erase it and I want you to replace those lies with truth. So let me ask you the question, which lie do you believe? Do you believe God owes you something? That if you give a dollar today, that God owes it to you in return to give it to you. That's a lie. Lie number two is that if that God just does not care if I give or if I'm generous to people. We don't have to give money, but give of our resources, of our time, of our care. And lie number three is to avoid generosity for fear. You know, uh, being a preacher by trade is a very difficult profession, believe it or not. But the hardest part about being a preacher is just walking around like spiritually bruised all the time, okay? For every finger I point back this way, it's like 18,000 pointing back at me. So what I did this week, I simply asked myself the question, which lie, if my goal is to replace lies with truth... Then I asked myself the question, which lie do I believe? And I'll be honest, I don't believe any of those. So then I asked myself the question, which lie about generosity do I believe? It's lie number four. On your notes, if you have. Lie number four is this. Is that your money is your money. That your resources are your resources. And as I sat there preparing this message, that's exactly how I felt. You know, I thought... You know, what do I say? I say, oh, I worked hard for it, and I saved it, and I invested it well, and I've been smart, and I've done this, and I've done that. But realistically, the, my resources, my money is the Lord's. Can I get an amen to that one? Now, without his blessing, without his blessing of me being pastor at this great church who takes care of me, thank you, without the blessings of the Lord, of a, of a family that is supportive 
You know, I would, ha- I would have no resources whatsoever. The Lord, it, all of my resources are the Lord's. That's the lie that I believed. So for my application today, my first question is, out of the four lies, which do you believe? And then question number two is on the same track, is where do you need to be more generous? And like I said, it's not just money or your debit card. That's the image we get these days. But I'm talking about generosity with your time and with your resources and with your cooking, with your feeling. Where do you need to be more generous? But let me just um, poke for a little bit more. Let me put a face to it. Who do you need to be generous to? I would imagine it would not take you long to find a person that you need to be generous to, someone that just needs kindness, someone that just needs thankfulness, someone that just needs to be shown that you love them and that you care. Who or where do you need to be generous? Replace the lies that you have regarding generosity with the truth. That generosity creates gratefulness and that generosity creates generosity from the Lord. A Christian who is generous leaves a legacy. A Christian who sees and meets needs demonstrates love. A Christian who uses the resources and time that God has given them will find gratefulness and fruit 25 years later. A Christian who meets needs, who sees a helpless nine-year-old boy, And decides, you know what, that's not somebody else's job. That's my job to care for them and to be generous to them. When somebody sees a nine-year-old boy who is in need, little did that person know the influence and impact that they would have 25 years later. I think about those three stories. That's amazing. That somebody just cared enough to show me and my family kindness and that there is fruit to bear ever since those moments. So friends, let us love, care, and give generously. If you're looking at your clock, we realize that we have some time left. And so with whatever time we have left, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just wash over you, with lack of a better image, I'm going to wash over you the truth. Every time you come to the end of a book of a Bible, there's always one simple question. How do I close it? How do I actually finish it and put it to bed, so to speak? So when you come to, after 19 weeks of the book of Philippians, you know, I don't really, there's really no great way to do it. So the best way that I know how to close any book of the Bible is simply just with truth. So what I'm going to do for the next five or seven minutes, some of you might want to take a nap, but I certainly hope you won't. Because what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read truth. The following references that I'm about to share are on the back of your note sheet if you're curious. And before I begin reading, I'm going to read something out of Psalm chapter 19, if you're familiar with it. This is Psalm chapter 19, verse 7. This is my justification for reading a whole bunch of verses. It says this, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It doesn't say a preacher's word is perfect. It says the scripture 
restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The judges of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much more than fine gold. Sweeter are they than the honey from the drippings of the honeycomb. This is the scripture. So I would pray that you would never find it boring. I'll say it this way. The best part of Sunday mornings should be the reading of the scripture. Just saying. So just receive the following scriptures. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says this. For I am confident, for I, Paul, am confident of this very thing, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will perfect it into the day of Christ Jesus. One twenty-one and 29. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to you... It has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, that I've suffered, Paul, and now here to be in me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude, set your mind to be like Christ. What is the attitude? Who? Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And for this reason, and for this reason, and for this Reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Yahweh, we would say, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 3 verses 8 through 11. More than that, I count all things to be lost, to be detriment in the view of the surpassing value of knowing that word knowing means intimately, gnosko, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, but feces, that I may gain Christ and that I may be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, and that I may know Him again. I may know Him intimately. Not just through a being up in the heavens and the sky, but that I may know Him personally on this side of earth. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, for which also we eagerly wait for a Savior who is the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus Christ. And then obviously the most famous section of Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, Cairo. Rejoice. Cairo. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, for the Lord is near. Verse 6. 
Be anxious for nothing. Say that after me. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Finally, loipon, finally, brother, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellent, if anything worthy of praise, dwell or ponder these things, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Friends, let us put into practice. That's what Paul is saying at the end of the main content of this entire book. Let us put into practice what we have learned, received, and heard, and seen in this book. And as a consequence, what will happen? If we actually apply the scriptures, that we are actually anxious for nothing, we practice these things, if we ponder what is lovely and what is right, what is the result is three things. That if we let go of anxiety, that if we ponder, concentrate on praiseworthy things, and that if we practice the truth, three things will happen. That we will then experience what? Peace. That is divine. That is incomprehensible. That is impenetrable. Chapter verse 7. We will experience peace. We will experience confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that we will experience joy. But not a joy that is found in circumstance. Can I get an amen? Not a joy that is found in circumstance, but a joy that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then he offers to you a gift of salvation. We call that the gospel. That Jesus Christ died, as you saw in Philippians chapter 2, he died on the cross to save you from your sin. And he offers to you the gift of eternal life by faith in him. That if you believe in him, you don't earn it. You can't. That if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you will be saved. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I always present the gospel every week. If you have never done that, I would encourage you to do so and then tell me afterwards. Without anything left to say, bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Uh, what can I say? Your word is awesome. It is restoring to the soul. It is sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Uh, Lord, it is perfect. Lord, it is an honor uh, to be pastor of a church where I do not have to worry about uh, entertaining people, uh, but a pastor of a church that the people want to love one another, want to love you, want to serve you, want to make disciples, want to send disciples and missionaries, and also want to hear the pure milk of the word. And Lord, what an honor it is to be here. Lord, I thank you for my friends and my family that are in this room. I thank you that for their support and their generosity to me and to this church and to the missionaries around the world that we have supported for 53, 54 years. Lord, I thank you for today, and I just thank you for uh, just the ability to come together and worship you, and I pray that you would be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.